Hey, I'd love to have you take your Bibles with me and make your way to Matthew chapter 4, where we're going to continue our journey through the Gospel of Matthew that we've been on. And I love this, this portion of Matthew. And it's one that, is, as I look at it, I can't help but have the classic American movie come to mind, Rocky IV, which is just a great movie. Beginning, of course, if you're familiar with it, Apollo Creed dies in the ring fighting the dreadful Ivan Drago. And, and then the movie sets up that Rocky is going to have to have a showdown. And one of the things that's great about it is as these two guys get in the ring, this isn't an isolated fight. This is a fight that has some history to it. And in all intents and purposes, it's a rematch. And you're left there wondering, is Rocky going to face the same fate that Apollo Creed faced? And what really made it a good movie, especially for a child of the 80s, was as a film released in 1985, it played into all the fears and stereotypes with the Soviet Union. And so this really wasn't two men in a boxing ring fighting each other. This was a showdown of two nations. The good, God-fearing, freedom-loving Americans versus those rotten, terrible communists. And... And, and so just a, you know, a fun movie. But joking aside, as I look at this passage, there's actually similar things going on here. Because today we're going to see Jesus have a showdown with Satan. And this as well is not an isolated incident. Rather, it is a rematch. A rematch of the time in the garden when, when Satan defeated Adam. Death entered the world. And we look at this encounter today and we say, is Jesus going to suffer the same fate? Is Satan going to be victorious again? And we know that this also is not just a confrontation of two individuals, but this is also a confrontation of two kingdoms. Here today, the kingdom of God comes face to face, toe to toe with the kingdom of Satan. And so we're going to take a look at this passage today, a good passage that that speaks to us about overcoming temptation, but also speaks to us about bigger things as well. So what I want to do this morning, let's read our text before us. And I actually want to read a little bit from chapter 3 as well, last week's passage, because I want you to see how closely this ties to Jesus' baptism that we looked at last week. Okay, So I'm going to read starting in verse uh, 13 of chapter 3 on through chapter 4, verse 11. You can follow along with me in your Bibles. God's Word says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, To be baptized by him, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And there's our passage for today. What I'd like to do, let's go to God in prayer, ask him for his help, and then we're going to jump in here and take a look at this in a little bit more detail. But would you pray with me, please? Well, God, this morning we are, again, so thankful for the privilege of opening up your scriptures. Thank you for your word in them is life. And God, they are what we need. This morning, we do not need to hear our own creativity, our own thoughts, and our, our own assumptions about life. But God, we need to come to you and hear truth from you and allow ourselves to be transformed. And so, God, this morning, we come before you and ask that you would help us in this process. As we open your word and as I speak, that you would, that you would speak through me, that you would give me clear words to say, and that you would get me out of the way, so to speak. That, God, that you would help us to not only recognize truth, but be able to apply it to ourselves. God, we can't do this in our own efforts. We we can't change ourselves, but you can change us. So, God, this morning, give us clarity of mind. Give us ears to hear what you are saying through your word. And, Lord, help us to be people who obey your word. Help us to be people who quickly run to you. Thank you so much for this time together. And God, we we trust that you will be with us as you are the faithful God. And so we seek you this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name and through the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Right, well, there is our our passage today. And as you see here, there's, there's a huge shift going on. We had just seen Jesus baptized. And this was this emotional and spiritual high as the Spirit of God comes upon him. And we hear the words of God, this is my beloved son. And now... All of a sudden, the Spirit takes Jesus into the wilderness for the season of of suffering and of weakness. And as I mentioned in my introduction this morning, this is not a time just of Jesus facing off with the devil, two individuals, but this is the meeting of two kingdoms, the clashing of kingdoms. There's a battle at hand here. And what I want us to see today is what's going on in this battle of kingdoms. The very first thing is that in Jesus' temptation, he demonstrates his right place as the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel. And he does this by reenacting history, so to speak. It shouldn't be too much of a surprise as we look at this and see that he's in the wilderness for 40 days. This should bring to our minds Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And in fact, there's a lot of parallels going on here. Just as Israel came out of Egypt, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before coming into the promised land. So Jesus comes out of Egypt. He wanders in the wilderness for 40 days before he begins his ministry in that same promised land. Just as Israel was led through the wilderness by the spirit, a cloud of uh, a pillar of cloud in the day, pillar of fire at night. So Jesus is led into the wilderness by the spirit. And in Israel's case, they they actually failed over and over again. And and what we see is Moses writes the book of Deuteronomy kind of as a farewell message. 
And it's at the end of his life, and it's kind of looking at the mistakes that Israel's done and saying, here's how you ought to live before a holy God. You've made these mistakes. This is what you're supposed to do. And guess what book of the Bible Jesus quotes from as he faces these temptations? It's all from Deuteronomy. It's as though Jesus is saying, I am the true son of God. I am doing exactly what is supposed to be done as as a child of God, as as the king of Israel. So there's a lot of parallelism here. And here, as Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds in the wilderness, proving he is the rightful Messiah. He is the rightful king. And yet, he's not just the king of the Israelites, but there is a global scale at play here because he's not just reenacting Israel's history. He's also reenacting the history of all mankind. So we talked about in the introduction, we also see parallels here with what happened in the garden, don't we? Here there's a a one-on-one showdown with Satan. In the garden, Satan asked questions like, did God really say this? Did he really say you can't eat of every tree of the garden? Here, Satan approaches Jesus in the same way. Did God really say you're, you're his son? There's a questioning of God's goodness, his good intent, and an attempt to cause a downfall. But there's also some contrast with the garden. Whereas Adam was in a position of strength, here Jesus is in a position of weakness. Whereas in the garden, Jesus is in the, the midst of beauty, surrounded by vegetation, food aplenty, Here, Jesus is in the wilderness, surrounded by rocks and stones, not surrounded by beauty, and and he is experiencing hunger. So whereas Adam failed in a place of strength, Jesus succeeds in a place of weakness, proving that he is the true son of God, rightful Messiah, the one who can set things right. And so he is reenacting history here and proving his right in all of this. And at the same time, we see that Jesus is being tempted by somebody who is tempting him. Well, we're introduced to the real adversary in the story here. And we see that Satan is not a symbolic representation of evil, but rather an intelligent, powerful spirit being who operates today. Yeah, I think this is one of the important things that we need to recognize that in our world today, especially in the American church, there is an increasing trend for people to really question, does Satan really exist or is this just a metaphor for evil? And I think it's very important that we not make the mistake of treating Satan as though he's not real. As C.S. Lewis in his writings, he talked about a tendency for people to make two equal and opposite mistakes, he said, uh, about when it comes to devils. He said, we can either have an unhealthy interest in them or we can have an unhealthy, unhealthy under-interest in them. And what's C.S. Lewis talking about? Well, when we have an unhealthy interest in Satan, when we give Satan too much credit, we lose any ability to talk about personal sin and personal guilt. Uh, Satan just becomes the scapegoat. The devil made me do it. And there is. There's personal sin. Humans are capable of evil. And at the same time, though, if we remove Satan from the picture, we lose the ability to speak about evil on a cosmic scale. Anything bad that we see people doing becomes just some function of biology gone wrong or psychological problems, or it's just a matter of social conditioning. And therefore, we might find ourselves saying, well, the fix for evil is to find biological cures or psychological treatments or to fix the institutions. 
And the thing is, if we do all that, at the end of the day, evil will still exist because Satan is very real. You know, I keep a pretty broad list, a broad range of friends on Facebook, and I have friends who, you know, seem to not talk about our real need. They seem to talk about only peripheral needs. And I have some people on Facebook who say, you know what, the problem in America is liberalism and, and feminism gone amok. And then I have other people on Facebook saying, you know what the problem in America is, is patriarchy. And we need to get rid of the patriarchy. Let me tell you something, friends. If I gave either group a magic wand and they could have any system they wanted, did you know people will still be violated? The injustices will still be done? Because listen to this. Our problem is not an institutional problem. Our problem is sin. And there is a real devil. And we need to be aware of that. In the story so far in Matthew, we've already been introduced to some of the people who are bad guys. We've seen Herod. He was a really wicked guy. We've seen the Pharisees. They are wicked. And we need to not uh, forget that they have a culpability. They're not puppets. They really are bad guys. But at the same time, we can't forget that behind the scenes, Satan is operating. He's working. And why is Satan here at this point in the story? Well, he represents the opposing kingdom. Progress has been made in God's kingdom. The baptism has happened. Jesus has been revealed as, as the son of God. And this can't be met. Uh, this can't go unmet without resistance. You see, on you say, she I say, two kingdoms cannot coexist. Establishing God's kingdom means the destruction of Satan's kingdom. And Satan's kingdom will push back. Uh, Satan knows the scriptures. It's interesting. In all these temptations, Satan quotes scripture. He would have known very well what's prophesied in Isaiah. For instance, for instance Isaiah 27.1 says, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that's in the sea. Jesus knew, I mean, Satan knew that when Jesus came and established his kingdom, that that meant the end of Satan's kingdom. So he's going to push back. So we see this, this battle of two kingdoms going on here. And what I want us to see today, that as these two kingdoms clash, I want us to see how this applies in our life. Yes, there are, there are lessons for us to learn in terms of how we fight temptation as individuals, how we pursue holiness in our lives. But there's also things that we need to see about how this functions within God's kingdom and what our role in all this is. So let's look at these temptations in a little bit more detail, shall we? Uh, the first temptation, turn rocks into bread. I don't know about you, but I struggle with this one. And I read it, it's like, what's, what's wrong with that? Why would Satan go there? He says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And you'll notice where he starts. If you're the son of God, are you really God's son? You're, you're the beloved son. What are you doing out here in the wilderness suffering hunger? Shouldn't the son of God be, you know, enjoying a feast and celebration? Didn't you just have this great, wonderful baptism? Shouldn't you be celebrating right now? Jesus, make, make those rocks into bread. And here's what I believe. When it comes to Jesus, I believe that Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead. The Son of God, that in his flesh, he never gave up his divinity. Fully God, fully man. Never lost his divine nature. Never lost his ability to work with power. And yet... In his human nature, I believe he related to God and approached life 
exactly how a human does. He was our example for how we as humans are supposed to relate to God. So I believe that Jesus humbled himself. And even in his earthly ministry, he didn't operate through his own power. He operated through the Spirit's power. Means as he pursued righteousness, it was through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Even as he performed miracles, I believe he performed miracles through the Holy Spirit. And at this moment, he is also completely in submission to the Father, doing the Father's will. And what's the Father's will right now? It's to be fasting, not feasting. Why is the Spirit empowering him right now? The Spirit is empowering him to endure suffering, not to turn rocks into bread. So what Satan is doing here is he's tempting Jesus to do something good with the wrong motive or at the wrong time. But this is Jesus' answer. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, and he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus knew this. Your greatest need is not a full belly. Later in his ministry, Jesus would tell the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You might recall this story. Lazarus was poor, destitute, suffered from hunger. A rich man had a full belly, and then they both die, and they both are in the afterlife And who has the real problem? Well, Lazarus' needs are taken care of. It's the rich man. And Jesus knew this. He could have gone and turned a bunch of stones into bread, had a full belly. He could have gone and filled other people's bellies with bread. He could have gotten a great big following, but that would have been treating the symptoms, not the disease. Because hunger is a result of, of sin. And he knew our greatest need wasn't full bellies. Our greatest need was the word of God to be made right with God. And therefore, he, he answers Satan. He says, listen, man should not live by bread alone. What we need is God. We need God's word. Now, a second temptation comes along. And this time it's to test God's protection. And Jesus is being tempted to doubt God's love and God's word. Satan says, if you're a son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. He'll command his angels concerning you on their hands. So they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, questioning, are you really God's son? Well, this time, it's not so much questioning Jesus' abilities, but now it's questioning his standing with God. It's kind of going right back to the garden. Did God really say this? Did he really say you're his son? Why are you you suffering right now? Didn't, didn't Didn't the Bible say he would protect you? You know what? You should be sure that you're God's son. Why don't you throw yourself down right here and make sure if you're so sure that you're his son, then then he'll protect you. And Jesus sees through this misuse of scripture. He says, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So a quote of Deuteronomy 6.16, which goes all the way back to Exodus 17, is where the Israelites are in the wilderness. They're grumbling about God and they're saying, Moses, make water come out of this rock so that we'll know God is really here. And in this moment, it wasn't really water and thirst that was the issue. It was their hearts. Read Exodus 17, 7 says, And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You see, Israel had seen all these amazing things. They'd seen God do all this miraculous stuff, delivering them again and again, saying, You are my chosen people. And yet they still had the tendency to question Does God really love me or not? And here, this is where Satan is trying to tempt Jesus. Did did God really call you his beloved son? And as Jesus had just come from the baptism, God had just spoken. And and for Jesus, that was enough. 
that God had said, you're my beloved son, that, that Jesus wasn't going to fail the same way because God had already declared his love. And Jesus didn't need further confirmation. Even in the midst of suffering, Jesus didn't need God to confirm what he had said. He trusted what God said. Now, a third temptation comes along, and it's basically a temptation to take a shortcut. Jesus is being tempted to gain glory apart from God. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. In this final temptation, we see the full scope of the battle. This is really about kingdoms. And, and, and Satan's saying, you want a kingdom? I'll give you a kingdom. Listen, you don't have to suffer like this. You can have the crown without the cross. And of course, Satan does something really sly here. What does he do? He shows him the kingdoms of the world and what? And their glory, right? And this is how Satan operates. He always shows us the glory, the beautiful picture When it comes to something like temptations with lust, that's what Satan does, whether it's pornography or romance novels or Instagram feeds, is to say, look at the beauty. Look at the fun. Look at the glory that you could have. What he doesn't show you is the pain, the heartbreak, the devastation of families, the exploitation of humans. No, it's the glory. Look at the glory. Don't you want this? It's what he does with Jesus. Look at the glory of the kingdoms, Jesus. Wouldn't you like this? I don't know what he showed Jesus. What would he have shown Jesus? Maybe he showed him children of the world. You know, Jesus loved children. Showed him the kids playing in in Nepal, the kids playing in Brazil, and all the kingdoms of the earth. Imagine... In that moment, Satan's saying, you know what's going to happen, Jesus, if you follow your father's plans. You know the wars that are going to happen, the famine, the genocide. Wouldn't it be better if you were king right now? could avoid all that. Wouldn't that be better than following the father's plan? I could give it to you right now. Maybe he showed him pictures of food. That's the way to my heart. Uh, the other day I was watching a YouTube video about the best street food in the world. And man, I was ready right there to go get a plane ticket. And it's like, I don't care if I get sick, I'll, I'll suffer sickness. I'll take my Cipro pill with me. I'm going to eat some really good street food. Don't underestimate the power of food, especially when you've been fasting. Maybe he showed him all the delicacies of the world, the culinary wonders. He showed him some kebabs in Arabia some dumplings in China. Jesus, this could all be yours. And you know what, Jesus, he was the true son of God and he was not going to discard his birthright for a bowl of soup. So this is what Jesus sees right through this and his response now is the first with a command. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus will not take a shortcut here because he knows taking a shortcut comes at the expense of worshiping God alone. Not only does he have total commitment to the Father, but he has total trust in the Father's path being the right path. Even when the Father's path comes with difficulty and tears and perhaps slower than we'd like it to come. And so now Jesus is victorious and the the kingdom of God has conquered The kingdom of Satan has taken a a huge blow, and Satan, the the leader of this kingdom, flees. So how do we respond to God's word? 
What do, what do we do with this? And, and here's what I want to do. Certainly, as we look at Jesus' temptation, I think we recognize right away that Jesus is tempted in some ways that we aren't. I doubt any of you will ever be taken up to a high mountain and offered all the kingdoms of the world. I have never been tempted to turn stones into bread. I've turned some bread into stones, but not the other way. But at the same time, what we see here is that in these temptations, there's commonalities. In the way that Satan operates, there's commonalities to how he tempts us. And we see in Jesus an example of how we fight temptation. But I don't want us to lose the picture of the, the, the battle of kingdoms here. And I want us to see that when we respond to temptation, when we overcome temptation, it also has kingdom implications. Here's what I mean. I say, I say overcoming temptation is an act of kingdom rebellion. Not rebellion against God's kingdom, but rebellion against Satan's kingdom. When we overcome temptations, God's kingdom is known and seen. When we fail, Satan's kingdom advances. As we talk about the concept of the kingdom, last week we talked about the fact that the kingdom does include land. It has a geographical presence, and we're not there yet. There's this already not yet element of the kingdom. And we won't know the kingdom fully until Jesus returns. We're not building the kingdom here, so to speak. We're not going to usher the kingdom in. Jesus is doing this. But, but at the same time, God's kingdom is still present here. And the biblical concept of kingdom includes geographical location, but it also includes everywhere that I have my right to exert my authority and power. And that means Jesus' kingdom is here because he has authority and power here. I kind of put it this way. It's similar to those who serve our country overseas, whether it's foreign dignitaries or military personnel. Even though their feet are not within our borders right now, they still obey the authority of our country, and they still work in, in regard to our country's interests. Likewise, our feet are not within the geographical boundaries of the kingdom, and yet we are still citizens of the kingdom And therefore, we are to use our resources and our time and our abilities, not for our own gain, but for God's kingdom's growth and advancement. And here's how this looks. Whenever people are living in obedience to the king, uh, it has a real world impact. I don't believe that we do things specifically for real world impact. We do things out of obedience to God, but it can't help but have real world impact. And when we do this, we start to catch glimpses of God's kingdom. Let me give you an example. This summer, we did our mission trip with our youth to Johnny and Friends Camp. This is a ministry of Johnny Erickson Tata. It's a ministry of kids with disabilities, and it's a camp that them and their families can come to. And as I listen to the families, you hear this, that this is just a slice of heaven. What do they mean by that? Well, in a world that increasingly ignores people with disabilities, in a world that marginalizes people with disabilities and even tries to get rid of people with disabilities, that in this area where people are being obedient to the king and obeying the values of the kingdom, which are things such as all people are created in God's image, when people start to see what community looks like when we are valuing people the way that the king values people, you start catching a glimpse of what community will look like in the kingdom. And that's what people mean when they say, this is a slice of heaven. But here's the thing, when we give in to temptation, 
then the opposite happens. When I give in to temptation, not only am I not seeking God's kingdom at that moment, but Satan gains a foothold. Families fall into suffering and destruction. Businesses start exploiting people. Governments fail to do justice. So in the resisting of temptation, overcoming temptation becomes an act of kingdom rebellion against Satan's kingdom. And God uses our rebellion to make his kingdom be known and seen. Now, how do we resist temptation? Well, we do see several principles here. I want to kind of go through these. First of all, we see that overcoming temptation requires that I trust God's goodness. This week, I took a phone call from a person who is contemplating giving in to temptation. I didn't know this person. I hope that they will hear the sermon. Um, but a lot of what was being talked about, a lot of what was being said, dealt with doubting God's goodness. One of the most common realities of temptation is questioning God's goodness. It's what Satan did in the garden. He said, the only reason God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is he's trying to withhold something from you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. This individual on the phone said, why hasn't God given me what I want? Maybe he hates me. You know what? I think Jesus likes watching me suffer. And whenever we begin convincing ourselves that God does not have good intentions towards us, we start to succumb to temptation. Jesus succeeded because he believed what God said about him. He believed that he was the beloved son. And even being led into the wilderness was not a sign that God had rejected him. And I want you to understand this too. When difficulty comes into your life, it is not a sign that God has rejected you. In fact, Jesus being led into the wilderness was right in the moment where God had just accepted him at the spiritual high. And that's often what happens. I appreciate this quote from Tim Keller. He said this, and I agree with it. Anyone offering you a Christianity without tears is giving you counterfeit money. And because this is a battle of kingdoms, we've got to understand if we're living our lives for God's kingdom, it will be met with resistance. So we need to believe that we are God's beloved children. Do you believe you are a child of God? I hope so. Now, overcoming temptation also requires that I know God's will and his word. See, Satan approached Jesus with suggestions that, of things that weren't overtly wrong. Use your power to turn stones into bread. Let God protect you. Procure a kingdom. Rule over people. These are all things that Jesus would eventually do. Yet Satan twisted God's word and tried to get Jesus to do them at the wrong time in the wrong way. Here's the thing. Every successful scam relies on one thing, that the scam artist knows more about a subject than the person being scammed, right? You don't try to scam an expert. You try to find someone who's ignorant. If you're going to sell a piece of counterfeit art, you find a rich person who doesn't know about art and sell it to them. You don't find an art expert. You don't find an artist. You don't find an art dealer, right? And this is the case with Satan. Satan is an amazing con artist, and he doesn't approach us with, with suggestions that are overtly evil sounding. He, he approaches us with things that sound good. They sound a lot like the truth. They're just slightly skewed, slightly off. So how do we be people who are not the victims of a scam? Well, we got to be experts in what God says. Notice in Satan's temptation, he quotes God's word in every one of his temptations, but Jesus is able to respond because he knows God's word and he comes back with God's word. You see, Jesus understood 
what God's will was for him, and he understood what God's word was. And, and this is what we need as well. As I talked to this person on the phone, I kept coming back to what Scripture said. Every time a claim was made about this is what God's like, I'd say, does this line up with Scripture? Is that what that says? And we need to be people who do that, people of the word, people who, who know what God says. We need this skill. Now, here's the thing that I want us to hear. God gives us what we need to resist. And when we resist, Satan will flee. But there's a warning. If we give into temptation, temptation gets stronger. What I need to resist temptation is the word of God and I need the spirit of God. Isn't that amazing? The same spirit that Jesus relied on is the spirit he gives to us, the Holy Spirit. He gives us what we need. We have the power to say no. And there's a promise that temptation is temporary. Even when temptation feels really forever and really difficult, James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And just as we see in today's text, what does Satan do? He fled. Yeah, he gave his tries, gave several of them. First, you don't succeed, try, try again, but eventually he fled. Here's the problem, though. Sometimes we feel the pressure of temptation. We think, you know, I'm just going to give in this once. I just need to be relieved from this pressure. And friends, giving in to temptation might very temporarily feel very relieving. But it will not relieve anything. It just gives Satan a foothold in your life. One writer says this. If you give Satan an inch, stay in the room longer than you should, or toy with the temptation, then watch out. He'll have you by the heel then the leg, and then the heart. You know, this text, I believe, leads us right into communion today. And I would like to invite those who are serving communion to come on down. I'm going to say a few more words. Uh, If you can make your way up, that would be wonderful. But as we come to communion today, I want to take everything we just said, and I want us to come to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. This is a passage that speaks of Jesus as being our high priest, one who can sympathize with us because he was tempted as we are. Hebrews 4.14 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want us to see this today. Jesus gives us a wonderful example of how to fight temptation. But I want you to see this as well. Jesus is not just an example. He is our savior. He is our high priest See, the problem is when we, we reduce Jesus down to just an example of how to say no to temptation, three easy steps of getting out of temptation, what we do is we basically turn Jesus just into another founder of another false religion. Because you see, this is how Satan operates. He goes, he, he starts a false religion, he gives power and influence to somebody, and they become an example and say, do this and you'll live. Be like me and you'll live. I'm the example. Do, be like me, you'll live. Jesus doesn't say that. False religion says, be like me and you live. Jesus says, I've already done everything. I've already done all the work so that you can live. 
See, Jesus is a wonderful example, but not just an example because he does the work for us. I will pay it. I will do the work so that you can live. What is this verse in Hebrews that I read? These verses I read in Hebrews. He became our high priest. I ask you a question. Why do we need a high priest? I'll give you a hint. Perfect people don't need high priests, do they? Certainly, we want to be growing in our obedience to God. Certainly, we want to be growing in our ability to say no to temptation. But here's the thing, friends. You are still an imperfect individual. You still sin. There will still be moments in your life where you give in to temptation. In that moment, what do you do? Well, the way of reliance on myself says, this makes me far from God and I need to step away for a bit, fix myself before I come back to God. But that's not a biblical view. A biblical view says, I'm already secure. Jesus has already done the work. I have a high priest who who can mediate between me and the Father. And it's a high priest that doesn't look at me and say, I succeeded, why can't you? No, it's a high priest that says, I know what you're going through. I can sympathize with you. Draw near with confidence. In that moment where I fail, I am called to draw near to God, to turn once more to him, to run quickly to God, not to run away and try to fix myself, to run to God. And that is what we need to see today. So as we come to communion today, yes, we learn lessons on how to say no to temptation, but we also remind ourselves once again, we have a great savior, a great high priest that in our failings beckons us to him and gives us confidence. The way we do communion here at Sunset Bible Church, we pass the elements, uh, first the bread, then the cup, hold on to the element, uh, and then I'll say a few words, we'll all partake together. If you are trusting Jesus as your Savior, we invite you to participate with us. And I will invite you guys to go ahead and begin serving the bread, and then I'll come down and say a few words. You may begin. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as his time on earth came to an end. It's right before he was arrested and crucified. Him and his disciples were celebrating Passover. And in that Passover meal is where he, he looked at it and he said, you know, this points to me. Matthew twenty six twenty six says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. He gave us this as a, a very tangible symbol to say, Jesus came in a real body, lived a real life, came in weakness, in obedience, in surrender, so that he could earn the right to bear our sin on his shoulders. You know, we have a very real devil, but we have a very real Savior too. And this is a reminder that he came for us. So let us partake together. I love this next part in Matthew 26. It says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
You know, this cup represents the blood that Jesus shed for us. He did this knowing everything that you would ever do. The Bible says that while we were unlovely, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that means when I mess up, when I fail, it doesn't compromise his love. Jesus called me, the father called me his beloved child, knowing everything I would do. One of the greatest things we need when it comes to saying no to temptation is confidence in how the father views us. And, you know, I love this, this section of Matthew 26, because notice what Jesus says. There's, there's confidence here. There's a look towards to the future, not just remembering what Jesus did, but a, a look forward. He says, I tell you, I'll not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. He doesn't say, you know, do this and, and maybe you'll get into my father's kingdom. Maybe I'll drink this with you again. No, he says, do this. And one day I'm going to do it with you in the Father's kingdom. My friends, today, if you are a child of God, what great confidence you have. Don't ever question how God views you. Beloved child of God. And friends, if you, if any of you are sitting here today wondering about that, wondering what does faith look like? What does this mean to trust Jesus? I would love to talk to you. Whether it's right here after service or going and getting coffee sometime. Because these are such important things. Your greatest need is a Savior. And so we drink this cup remembering Jesus, our Savior, our High Priest. Drink with me. And I would love to pray for you. I invite you to stand as we get ready to be dismissed. And let me pray for you this morning. God, our Father, we thank you again so much for this day. Thank you for what was represented just now in taking communion. So I look back and realize that we have a Savior, a real Savior, who, who died for us, who bore sin on his shoulders because he had earned the right to do that. The true Son, the true Messiah, King of the kingdom. And so, God, this morning we are thankful and God, I would pray for this congregation as we head out from here. Lord, I don't know what temptations are being felt right now, but would you remind us of truth, both truth and how you see us, truth and what you say is right and wrong, truth and what your will for us is. God, help us to not be people who are easily duped. And Lord, as we go into our week this week, wherever we find ourselves, Lord, help us to be salt and light in this world that your kingdom might be seen, a glimpse of your kingdom caught through our actions, through our words. So I pray that you would have your hand on this congregation, that you would guide and protect this week. And I pray this in the most powerful name of Jesus, through the Spirit. Amen.